Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these findings and more at spiritualitystudy.org. My conversations with friends and colleagues right now all circle back to the same place. The light at the end of the COVID tunnel is tenuously appearing, yet we feel as exhausted as at any time in the past year. Memory problems, short fuses, sudden drops into what feels frighteningly to me like depression, and fractured productivity that alternately puzzles and shames us. We're at once excited and unnerved by the prospect of life opening up again. So one recent day in yet another hard week, I went searching for someone to shed light on all of this, the psychic and physiological and spiritual effects of a year of pandemic and social isolation. I found the clinical psychologist Christine Runyon. She explains how the very first news of the threat of a new virus in the world instantaneously activated our stress responses, sent our nervous systems into an overdrive from which they've never retreated. To use other words, the pandemic has disrupted our mind-body connection, which is always as sensitive to what is imagined as to what is real. And that became the shaky foundation on which we have each had to carry all of the other events and losses and traumas that have followed. This conversation is so practically helpful for understanding what's been happening at a creaturely level inside us for over a year and for gaining some simple strategies to bring our conscious selves back online, mustering the fullest capacities innate within us for meeting the world ahead. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Christine Runyon is a clinical psychologist and professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. She also supports the mental well-being of healthcare providers in a clinical consulting practice, Tend Health. I want to just very briefly just know a little bit more about you, kind of the background of your life. Sure. Like, where, where did you grow up? I grew up in Ellicott City, Maryland. And you actually started your career as a psychologist in the U.S. Air Force. I did, yes. How did that happen? I did. So I actually come from a family of a lot of civil servants. My dad was worked in the uh, intelligence community, CIA and NSA. And I have a lot of West Pointers, actually, on my mom's okay. side. And my grandfather commissioned me. He was already suffering from Alzheimer's at that time. So I think we pledged something close to allegiance to the Constitution. (laughs) (laughs) May have had a little variation in there, but he commissioned me in the Air Force. And um, that is how I started my career and actually my career with um, integrated care, which is bringing psychology, bringing behavioral health into the primary care setting, which is where most people access their care, the emergency room or primary care. And so really making psychology and mental health at the forefront of that instead of as this specialized, very difficult to access and stigmatized um, part of our health care. I mean, it also occurs to me that that working in that sphere, both the call to service, which is in the military, as it is in, in healthcare, mm-hmm. but also the backdrop of trauma that is involved in yes. in that profession. 
I can also see how that flowed into the broad perspective and the kinds of things that you were paying attention to that that lead to the perspective you have on the, you know, mm-hmm. almost kind of the species level trauma that we're experiencing right now. Yes. I, and I, I <laughs> well said, I think it is a species level and we trick ourselves as smart as we are, as creative as we are, uh, and innovative in terms of technology that beneath all of this, there is something that's so primitive and inescapable. And as much as we try to, I actually think that's one of the things this pandemic has shown us is as much as we have tried to create so much connection, I'm using air quotes, connection. Yeah. We actually see how insufficient that is. Yeah. And so much has happened, both in the world and in our society and in individual lives and communities. But what I'd love to just kind of have you open up for us to start is, you know, all of that aside, just the nervous system effect that this virus in the world, you know, kind of the baseline with which we entered into mm-hmm. all the things that then later happened, what started to happen in our bodies? Yeah. So you you stop me if I'm kind of getting too, uh, if I'm geeking out too much on the neuroscience here. <laughs> I found it really, I've been geeking out in what you've been, I've been reading, looking at your PowerPoint presentations to physicians, <laughs> okay. and I think it's fascinating. Okay, <laughs> okay, fair enough. Okay. Yeah, so in our, in our bodies, you know, we have this autonomic nervous system and what we call often our fight-flight system, which is part of the autonomic system, which is, in fact, automatic. And which is not happening at the level of our conscious awareness. Threat is always detected by the nervous system. It can additionally be detected by our thinking brain, but it's always first detected at the level of our nervous system. And it's exquisitely designed. It is a beautiful evolutionary adaptation that if we were to ever lose it, we would <laughs> we would become extinct. So its its job is to keep us safe and to keep us alive. And so it's really sensitive. And when it detects threat, it activates a series of responses. And this cascade of neurotransmitters and hormones go off inside of our body to prepare us, to prepare us to fight or flight if we estimate the threat to be bigger than we can manage. Um, And That's a very predictable response. It's our source code as humans. You Mm -hmm. have it. I have it. Every one of your listeners has it. And and when that goes off, it does a number of things. It um, releases glucose, so we have some energy. It increases our heart rate. It increases our blood pressure. It diverts blood to our major muscle groups. It temporarily gives our immune system a little boost. And it mm. stops our digestion. <laughs> it, it does all these things specifically. You can see how that it increases our clotting factor so that we can fight or that we can flight and that we have all the reserve necessary to be able to do that. And then our parasympathetic nervous system, which is often called our rest and digest or relaxation system, is also innate within us. And when the threat subsides or when our thinking brain, our prefrontal cortex, 
sends a message that, okay, the threat, we've absolved the threat or the threat isn't here. We've just imagined the threat. Right. The parasympathetic nervous system can then sort of calm things down and bring things back to baseline. And that's really where, you know, when we are most integrated and creative and aligned with ourselves and we have present moment awareness, that is our natural kind of homeostasis of our nervous system. Kind of the the balanced state. The balanced state. And some people will call that kind of our optimal zone of arousal, if Mm -hmm. you will. Mm -hmm. Um, And this kind of window of tolerance, which does get quite disrupted, for example, for people who've had prior trauma, that window really shrinks. And so you can activate this nervous system at lower levels. And that's one of the things that I think has been happening throughout this whole year for various reasons, both related to the virus and related to our social circumstances in this country. So one of, yeah, one of the, um, one of the things I've been thinking about and just talking to friends and colleagues about is how, I mean, obviously just even as you describe that very clinically, it's clear that here we are a year on and we never got to, the threat never went away. Right. But what I've also experienced as I look back on the year and its many chapters, including the death of George Floyd, like the the racial reckoning and rupture, the drama of the election, it feels to me, you know, in our work, in my work, my colleagues and I, like there was a lot of adrenaline that got mm-hmm. generated at different points in the last year because of things that were happening in the world. And, and that's just quite a part, again, from people having incredible losses and stresses in, in their lives and, right, losing yeah. people and illness and jobs and all of that. But just you kept going. There was, there was mm-hmm. kind of this energy source. And then it has felt like winter set in, the election was over. Um, I feel like all of the energy flowed out of my body, <laughs> right? Yeah. And it's been yeah. really hard to feel even kind of, it's not just that I have felt low in energy. I felt disembodied and yeah. like I'll never be the same again. And mm-hmm. and I talk to other people who feel that way too. I, I think that's also part of the nervous system, uh, both assault and response. You know, we mm-hmm. have, we talk about fight or flight, but there's also a state of freeze and which can look very much like you're describing, you know, this state of apathy, of detachment, of even disembodied or dissociative and Mm -hmm. numbing, a lot of numbing. And that is a state of physiological high arousal, actually. There's still a lot happening underneath the skin in terms of the arousal, but the body has essentially tucked in. And it's a protective stance. You know, there's a lot of protection there. And anybody who is at risk of depression, as previous depression, it's it can be a scary place to be because it has so many, um, there's so much residue there, you know, of like, oh, this seems familiar. I remember when. And yes. that, yeah. Um, so it can be really scary because it's like, oh, is that coming back? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, but it, it actually can be, if we understand that as a natural variation within our nervous system, that may have a little protective factor as to not get into the rumination cycle where we're constantly monitoring, mm-hmm. how is it now? <laughs> how mm-hmm. is it now? And is, mm-hmm. is this coming back? Is it coming back now? <laughs> yeah. Um, and to just know that that's actually a natural variation of our system too. And what 
is often protective in instances of such widespread trauma, if you will, has been taken from us in this pandemic. You know, connection. Um, Our nervous systems know touch. They know closeness and a hug. Mm-hmm. And to not be able to do those things when people are really hurting has been a huge loss, and there's much grief there. Yeah. Um, and I guess, you know, that is so much of my message is if we can understand and appreciate what we are experiencing at that level, not, you know, whoever you are, whatever you are feeling, like, of course, <laughs> of course you are feeling that. Look at our current conditions and that it's, it's a normal response to incredibly unfamiliar, unusual, unpredictable, uncontrollable circumstances. Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with clinical psychologist Christine Runyon. You know, it feels to me like a tragedy in our midst of the way all of this unfolded is that um, I think probably you could make an argument that like our entire societal nervous system was stressed and people went to different places, right? You know, you talk about also symptoms of this stress on our nervous system that I think I recognize in myself and we all recognize as being more impulsive, moody, rigid in our thinking, irritable, Mm -hmm. lashing out, a frustration tolerance. And you could almost see that play itself out in our political life. Yes. Right? And so... Collectively, we were faced with this impossible choice, right? That the very thing that makes us human, which is our physical connection to other people, was the cost of keeping each other safe, right? And all of that is terrible. Somewhere along the way, part of the dynamic was you're either on the side of the science, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right? Or Or you're interested in killing people. And... So somehow, I guess what I'm saying is like, this is an impossible, it's a tragedy. But I feel like it stopped us from actually being really honest about the the terrible effects of the social isolation. Yeah, it's beautifully, beautifully said. And I, I, I think it is not, not at all a coincidence, like you're saying, that the level of social distancing that we needed to do in order to have a societal cooperation to try to avoid further infection actually really galvanize this in-group, out-group, this othering. Um, And all of a sudden, we all entered into this same state of uncertainty and fear and are all really at that place of looking at safety and then love and belonging. And I think that... That need to belong 
really um, catapulted people to the extremes to figure out, am I, are you, are you in my group or are you of that other group? Right. And the truth is we're all in a panic and in, yes. in, in fear and we're not, we're in our bodies, right? Yes. We're in our nervous systems, as you say. Yes. So we are all activated. That nervous system dysregulation is the source of where all of these other um, behavioral manifestations are coming. And we're all patterned in different ways. And a lot of that, I'm a psychologist, so you know it's going to like draw back to childhood. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Um, but a lot of that has to do with what, what were the ways that we met stress as a kid? How did we mm-hmm. learn how to meet stress in a way to stay safe as a kid? And unexamined, those just continue to show up through our lives. Um, And so not everybody manifests in the exact same way because of that patterning in those histories, particularly if left unexamined. Um, But you can certainly find plenty of people who are responding to that activation in a way that that meets, you know, aggression, rigidity in thinking, um, getting very myopic in a perspective and not having much cognitive flexibility to share anybody else's perspective or um, ideas. And so you have a massive loss of empathy. Right. Massive loss of empathy. So I think like, you know, one of one um, implication of that for me, again, I feel like naming this is, feels mm-hmm. relieving. Mm-hmm. Even though what we're naming is is a really just impossible and terrible situation we've all been placed in. So what do we know about, what do you know about the effects on us as humans, as creatures um, of what we've called social distancing, but, you know, what that entails, the isolation of this, the lack yeah. of touch, the lack of seeing and being seen mm-hmm. right, in a world of masks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right. Um, I think about this on multiple levels. Um I had a patient one time who um, had pretty severe, very severe PTSD, and she described this skin hunger Mm. because she so desperately wanted to feel connected and knew that that was also a source of incredible activation for her. Mm. And so that term comes up for me is sort of we all have particularly people living alone my mom is 80 and she's living alone and um being very uh vigilant and diligent about precautions and i think about that for her um because our nervous systems know that i mean i know my inclination and in being with somebody who's suffering is to lean in and to to touch if that feels safe to them and to hug and the loss of that at scale um, I think is really affecting is affecting our nervous systems quite a bit so this process of naming and allowing I think is the term that I would say mm-hmm. seeing it as a human response to the conditions that are rather than Um, something wrong with me. So many of us humans are prone to, right, even ask that question, what's wrong with me? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, even how now we're all saying why I'm I'm so much less productive. And like, it feels problematic. And we're not, and I do do it too, but it's not, 
it's not really reasonable, right? Mm-hmm. Not being at what you're saying, we're not compassionate to ourselves. Right. And I, I even bristle a little bit at some of what I'm seeing in terms of trying to codify the effects of this. Uh, what is the effect of this social isolation (laughs) that we're experiencing? Because we are using measurement and terminology that we know and that is familiar, like what are the rates of depression now? What are the rates of anxiety now? And I worry about that a little because I think it does two things. One, we're using that language because we have a way to, to measure that. But it is such a medical lens. It's such a lens Mm. of pathology. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it actually captures what I'm saying, which is this is a very normal, in fact, predictable human experience, given the conditions that we have. (laughs) Right. Um, And when we start to say, well, it's, you know, 30% of people are now expressing depression and 30% of people are expressing anxiety. And so many, I saw some horrible statistic about how many, what percentage of American young people had contemplated suicide, yes. right? Those kinds yes. of statistics just become another trauma on top of everything yes. else. And, a, and a, some, something that says, oh, well, gosh, if it's 30%, that means 70% of people don't have it. What's, mm-hmm. what's wrong with me? Mm -hmm. (laughs) right Mm -hmm. Um, and that we pathologize it that I worry will send a subtle message um, around whatever insert word I'm not whatever enough resilient enough strong enough smart enough funny whatever Mm -hmm. our, our brains will do and I actually think that the other thing that's likely to happen is we try to intuit solutions to make ourselves feel better yeah. in the short term that are often pretty effective in the short term, but cause downstream problems. And those kinds of numbing things, you know, are alcohol, drugs, um, Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> Somewhere you even said like worrying that, that even oh, yeah. worrying. And then I think that's a personality type too. And I fall into that sometimes. Like somehow that feels like you're controlling it. Like I'm totally. going to I am going to bear down and think yes. this through. And if I yes. worry about it, the worst thing won't happen. That you say that that's a, that's one of these inclinations we have that is counterproductive, but feels so natural. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. We, we, we want to have control. I mean, that's why the uncertainty, the unpredictable yeah. nature of this is so hard for us physiologically. And as a mindfulness teacher and practitioner, I really work at this intersection too of metabolizing the reality that there is no control. <laughs> right. And it's one thing to know that at an intellectual level. It's another thing to really embody that as our lived experience every day. And are, is it your understanding that metabolizing that, as I think you said, allowing that to be true, is that like the closest we can come to recovery right now? Or <laughs> is that part of, the, of a more productive coping or a more healthy coping? I think it's part of it. If I had to... See, if I had to sort of categorize what I think are those um, strategies or elements, and I, I really appreciate this conversation because sometimes I think 
some of the right quote unquote self care solutions that are out there are actually they can sound quite trivial, mm-hmm. but when we can when we can package them through an understanding of this physiology, you know, when somebody says oh, just take a deep breath, <laughs> um, it's like working at that level. But I guess what I would say is I think the self awareness piece, even before the allowing, you know, we have to have some internal vision around what's really here for ourselves mm-hmm. and know that how it shows up for you is going to be different than how it shows up for me. How it shows up for you today is going to be different than how it may show up for you next week. So that awareness and the allowing, being curious, if we can be curious, just what's going on inside of our own bodies the neurotransmitter of curiosity is dopamine. So if we can be curious, we can give ourselves uh, a little hit of dopamine and then compassion. If I had to say the one thing that probably um, supersedes all of those is compassion, including compassion for oneself. Um, do you... Um, yeah, I just, I just lost my thought. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> just completely this never happened to me in the same way it happens all the time now um yeah so you um I, I think what you're saying when you said a minute ago like just take a breath sounds mm-hmm. trite mm-hmm. but that for example taking a breath from what you know scientifically about our bodies that there's a way to talk about that that that, that actually is is a strategy um, yes. that makes sense physiologically so what are some of those strategies? Yeah. So one that you've kind of come to is the, the naming it, which is that's part of the self-awareness, but that's also leveraging your thinking brain. Our nervous system is really activating, is, is acting at this very primitive level. And in fact, when it goes off, it compromises our thinking brain. <laughs> right. it, and so when we can name oh, this is anxiety, or this is, this is anxiety showing up as, what was that thought? <laughs> right? We right. can, well, we could just name it and put it out there. It brings our thinking brain back online. And, and we can begin to quiet our nervous system by leveraging our thinking brain um, as well. And so that, that's what happens when you, when you name something is that, you send a message to, you can send a message to your nervous system like, oh, okay, I, I see what this is. I, I, I got you. It's okay. We, right. It's okay. We're just having a conversation. It's, it's okay to lose your train of thought. Right. I've probably done it seven times already. I <laughs> just sort of glossed over it. Um, so that naming it is a really powerful strategy. Um, the breath. You know, uh, with a caveat that the breath is not neutral for everybody. And so I do want to be sensitive to that. And and certainly as a mindfulness teacher last spring, um, you know, teaching and encouraging around the breath was precarious. Hmm. What we've discovered about breathing. Yeah, yeah. So a long, I mean, there's various techniques you can do with the breath, but if you're going to do one thing, a long exhale, because that that's part of our sympathetic nervous system, the sort of dorsal part of our sympathetic nervous system that activates our calming. So a long exhale, the inhale is sort of can have an activation part, a long exhale can 
that alone can actually be quite calming, although there's some other breath techniques that, that one can use as well. The other things that, um, again, sound, <laughs> if you don't understand this at the nervous system, they sound almost, I don't know, new agey or kind of foo-foo, but scents. So I always work now with a candle in my office. And why is that? What does that do for us? So any of our senses, because that's really the information source of our nervous system, is Mm -hmm. through our senses. Mm -hmm. And so a scent that I like, that I enjoy, it bypasses that thinking brain and goes right to that part of my nervous system. And so I'm creating a space where my senses can can intercept safety Mm. and Mm. pleasantness. Mm. And so that may be music for some people, background music, or you, you, we all know this experience of you hear a song and you're immediately taken back to someplace, yeah. some point in your life, yeah. right? Some point in time. Yeah. Yeah. Because it, not because you thought about that memory, it's like that memory spontaneously emerged. Yeah. You're an experience and you're in a suite of emotions. Yeah. 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 So scent and sound can be really pretty accessible tools to just send those messages of comfort or safety. And then we can work with the body too, the body quite directly to send messages of safety and of calming to our nervous system. So our body's this incredibly rich textured source of data Mm. for us Mm. But we can also intentionally be in postures, be in ways that the nervous system senses safety. So a very simple one, um, and we could do it now together, is just putting your feet on the floor so that your legs are uncrossed and your feet are fully making contact with the earth, maybe pressing down through the heel pressing through the balls of the feet, feeling a little of that sensation coming up through the legs, and feeling yourself in your seat being held. Yeah. How is that? I feel that. Yeah. So fight or flight has a, has a body posture, right, of being on the toes, you know, right? It's like, I got to, I got to move here somewhere towards or away from feet flat on the floor. It's like, okay, I'm here. Hmm. It's okay to stay here. It's okay to be here. So we can work with the body directly in those ways to send messages of safety. And then one of my common go-tos is around this affiliative stress response, tend and befriend. And particularly if I don't have people around me is to just make contact with myself you know I put my hand on my heart on my chest oh you mean literally literally (laughs) yeah yeah but I feel like when I think about the lack of touch in my life right now Mm -hmm. I feel like the closest I get to touching people is handing over a credit card right (laughs) so I really appreciate what you're saying and and you're saying as a as a from the science yeah this is something that is truly, truly acting on us. Yeah. And that's when you said, you know, the brain doesn't, <laughs> this incredible brain we have, but it doesn't know much between imagination and real. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I will sometimes, you know, say to people, like, um, 
I want you to imagine cutting open a lemon, a juicy lemon, and bringing that half of the lemon onto your tongue (laughs) and just let it rest there. And what do you notice? Hmm. You mean I've noticed the tart? (laughs) Yeah. I've noticed the tart almost. I would pucker up from the thought. Uh, And maybe even a little saliva in the mouth. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I trust there's no lemon in your... No. <laughs> We're not together, but no. <laughs> there's no lemon in your studio. Yeah. We can create a physiological response through our imagination, which is, you know, it's it's a double edge. <laughs> it's a gift and a curse because that is worry. That is the... Right. That is, right? <laughs> right. But you're saying we can also activate that to comfort ourselves if we yes. take it seriously enough. Exactly. Exactly. After a short break, more with Christine Runyon. Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with clinical psychologist Christine Runyon. We're exploring what we've been living through in pandemic and lockdown in terms of how it has activated our nervous systems, the mind-body baseline on which each of us has navigated all of the events that have unfolded. I know what I was going to say a minute ago when I lost my train of thought for the thousandth time in the last few months. Um, (laughs) I was going to say how I appreciate the reverence you have for our bodies and our nervous systems, right? And to me, that also feels helpful to remember that our bodies are doing their best to take care of us. Oh, yeah. And it's out of control. But somehow, even that example you just gave, that we also have probably more power than we realize to reorient that and, and tap into those same powers to help ourselves. It's both been a sort of professional um, pursuit, you know, but a deeply personal one as well, as many of these things are. I've had a lifelong struggle with my own body. And uh, probably up until maybe about five years ago, and this reference, yeah, and now it is it is just a wonder and a source of curiosity and I can appreciate it for all the ways it's working on my behalf even when I meet it with frustration and I had hip surgery in December and had a fair amount of pain but it was fascinating to watch my own relationship with that because I I knew that you know, I had the sense of, of course, there's pain. You have a lot of inflammation. There's a lot of healing that has to happen. Of course, it's pain. And I didn't get into that cycle of, well, why do you have so much pain? And why can't you do this? And all of that rumination that I think we do with our emotional selves. (laughs) Why do I feel so tired? Why do I, you know, and, and this is why when I think about 
what are the superpowers that we all kind of hold in us that is also part of our source code? It's that self-awareness. Um, is there a pause point to be able to step out of that automatic pilot and then be able to make an intentional choice? There's a quote that's attributed to Viktor Frankl, and um, he says, between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space lies our power to choose. And in our choice lies our growth and our freedom. Hmm. And it's such a beautiful encapsulation, I think, of that self-awareness and that pause, which is so hard to do at this time because we're so activated. And so it's just recognizing when we can pause and, and say, oh, that's what that is. And I think having just been steeped in your world of thought and knowledge, you know, I understand that better, actually, the physiology mm. of that quote. I mean, mm -hmm. so you've been talking about this, but we're, that we talk about the amygdala and the fight or flight, right? That's all the most primitive parts of our brain, but that that's the part of our brain that is most natural and those connections are fast mm -hmm. and automatic. Mm -hmm. And what I've been learning from you is, and, and you know, of course, I knew about our prefrontal cortex where we that the thinking brain right mm -hmm. what do you call the primitive brain and the thinking brain that takes a little more effort it is mm -hmm. our superpower but as you're saying like we have to take that space and make that choice yeah it's i mean it's really that power of the pause um it's imperfect there's plenty of times where i have done that paused and then just went right back down the rabbit hole. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, yeah. but every so often, you know, every so often I'm, I'm able to catch myself and to make a very intentional choice to turn towards, closer towards my values, closer mm -hmm. towards what's, what's really meaningful to me. I want to talk a little bit about TEND. Oh, yeah. Because you do primarily work with healthcare providers. I do. I, I just want to read something you wrote about this work. Um, you said, No amount of sophisticated technology can do what health professionals have done these past few months. Offered care with uncertain evidence. Sat with the dying. Comforted family members from afar held one another in fear and grief, celebrated unexpected recoveries, and simply showed up. We have asked and expected clinicians to show up in ways they were never trained to do. No one has been trained in how to emotionally manage months of mass casualties. No one has been trained on how to keep showing up despite feeling feckless on the job. No one has been trained how to keep regular life afloat at home and anxiety at bay while working day after day with a little-known biohazard. Wow. And that's what they've done. Yeah. That's what they've done. And I want to stand in deep gratitude and honor every one of them and serve in the way that I can. Thank you for that. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> it's, it's powerful to have something you've yeah. written read back to you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, you know, and what I really enjoy is um, is holding space for people, bearing witness, and and being of service, and 
And because I know medicine, because that's where my career has been, it feels like the time to be doing this. And that was the inception of Tend Health. Hmm. I want to just, uh, this is something I've thought about a lot this year, and I'm just, I'd love to discuss it with you. I'd love to hear your reaction to it from from your whole career of working in the military and and now with doctors on what we say is the front line. Just thinking about the trauma, you know, again, I feel like these layers of trauma that we've been through that we just haven't paused to name and really mm-hmm. sit with and grieve and even like wonder about what they're doing to us. I mean, there's some things we wonder about what they're doing to us and others that we don't. And so for me that there was this moment and of seeing my daughter, my my 20-something daughter, last summer for the first time in six months, she'd been working with children, so really quarantined, and mm. and I haven't seen her since, uh, which is hard. And, um, and she it was in New York City, so, you know, oh. they had gone through that. And she, even though we were sitting outside, she kept her mask on. And... Um, I, you started crying and now I feel like I was right. And so I, I was kind of thinking the whole time, like, I need to respect the fact that she's being really careful, you know? Mm-hmm. And then at some point, I realized that she was keeping this mask on because she was so scared of getting me, yeah. her elderly mother, sick. <laughs> <laughs> she wasn't being cautious for herself. And, and then I, so I've thought about, like, we need to take in yeah. what it has meant this year. That we became a danger to each other mm-hmm. by virtue of our breath, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is a trauma to feel, I can't help but understand it at the level of the nervous system, precisely because of that. Our, our nervous system, it takes a lot of work for our brain to say, oh, but they have a negative COVID test or they haven't had this or they haven't, you know, just sort of walking around every, you know, to the grocery store or seeing somebody that you care about or to have this feeling. I mean, you know, my son coming home from college and his girlfriend coming and where have they been? Oh, yeah, I've had that too. (laughs) You're scared of your kids. Yes. But But there's this subtle thing or not so subtle, but different that the uncertainty and the threat... Yes, is about getting the virus, but also that we've all been walking around um, fearing being a danger to others. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And truthfully, I mean, that happened a lot in healthcare settings, Mm. you know, Mm. that um, because of the incubation period, you know, people were able to transmit virus. We saw rates around... Um, employees just skyrocket more from infecting one another than being infected from patients. Yeah, And wow, that's another thing to consider about what our healthcare professionals have been carrying for us Mm -hmm. and carers have been carrying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And naming it is helpful, but those, you know, the messaging between those parts of our, our system, because there's always this active level of sensing that's happening outside of our awareness. And so we can say that, right, sitting on the bench with your daughter, but then as soon as you get up to go and walk to your car and may pass by 
however many other other people, your nervous system is resensing that all over again. Right. So compassion is the the I think <laughs> compassion and for others and compassion for self, um, for all that we're feeling, all that we're sensing. And in many ways, all that we're doing to try to get out from under what we're feeling, you know, that mm-hmm. assuming we're not hurting other people, but other what other kind of numbing behaviors or um, having compassion when we when we're snappy with somebody and yeah, <laughs> or they're snappy with us. <laughs> yes, or they're snappy with yeah. us. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, when we were speaking about, when you talked about just strategies and techniques, um, actually one that I had written down that I don't think we talked about was was gratitude. Mm. But you also coupled it with this word savoring. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. You, you talked about, actually, again, from the scientist in you, which is about how we're so... Um, we're so good at, skilled at looking out for what's wrong... Both physiologically and also kind of culturally, but but this savoring is like inclining the mind to Mm -hmm. look moment to moment for what's going to release oxytocin in us. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's we're it's so easy to pass over how things, you know. Oh, this is how it's supposed to be, you know. So we don't actually drop into um, the wonderment of whatever is here and to do that as much as we can through our sensory experience Mm -hmm. and we do have to we do have to incline the mind and when we when we know that that's not um sort of a personal failing or that um somehow we didn't get the update you know in our (laughs) our particular uh neurobiology like that that's true for all of us because of um, needing to stay alive and needing to stay safe. And that's how our nervous system is wired. And so we actually have to put some efforting towards um, noticing that which is neutral or pleasant. In fact, you know, if we can really notice, most things that are even neutral become pleasant hmm. because they become fascinating. Mm. But we do have to create those conditions, and it's so worth it if we do. So I think we're not going to be able to end on an upbeat note. <laughs> um, and that's okay. I, Because I think that may also be part of like just being present to, to being honest. And, and somehow, I don't know, something I've... There's been so many uncoverings in this year, right? So many things um, that surfaced that were true, but they really surfaced. And... And one of them is that we don't know how to mourn and grieve in this yeah. society, giving the numbers of how many people have died. And it's, you know, that's not, that's not mourning. And um, isn't there something in us physiologically that needs to do that, that needs to absolutely sit with our losses? And so maybe that's, maybe that's the, it's not upbeat, but it's a step towards health step towards yeah. that, that balance yeah. that we need to recover. We are, we are pretty conditioned to turn away um, from discomfort and suffering um, in our society. We are not very good at allowing for grief, which is always on its own timeline, and it's unpredictable in its own right. And 
And this is a tough one because we don't have, it's, it's not a pinpoint experience. How do we have, I don't know what it looks like to have a, a day of remembering or right. some sort of ritual around, because we're still in it is the other yeah. thing. Yeah. We're trying to grieve a trauma that is still ongoing. And yeah. I don't have the answer to how to do that other than one breath at a time. Because mm-hmm. it's still here. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. (laughs) I'm really grateful. Christine Runyon is a professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. She's also a certified mindfulness teacher, and she co-founded and co-leads Tend Health, a clinical consulting practice focused on the mental well-being of medical and healthcare workers. You can learn more about that at tend.health. On Being Project is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Lauren Drummerhausen, Aaron Colasacco, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Suzette Burley, Zach Rose, Colleen Scheck, Julie Seipel, Gretchen Honnold, Jale Akavan, Rodrigo Tuma, Ben Cott, Gautam Shrikishan, and Lily Benowitz. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent, nonprofit production of The On Being Project. It is distributed to public radio stations by WNYC Studios. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Supporting organizations and initiatives that uphold a sacred relationship with life on Earth. Learn more at Calliopeia.org. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. The Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. And the Ford Foundation, working to strengthen democratic values, reduce poverty and injustice, promote international cooperation, and advance human achievement worldwide. On being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Minnesota.